You are listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. Our topics can include, but are not limited to, murder, sexual assault, graphic and gruesome details, and more. These topics are adult in nature and are not meant for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. On November 8, 2001, a woman was sentenced to life imprisonment because the justice believed that she had a lack of remorse for the murder that she had committed. The justice also refused to set a fixed term on how long the woman had to wait to apply for parole and actually listed that her papers be marked never to be released. This was the first time that a woman was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility for parole in Australian history. Welcome to episode 43 of Gone But Never Forgotten, the sixth story of Catherine Knight. and welcome back to Gone But Never Forgotten. First and foremost, as always, we want to thank you, the listener, for tuning in to us every week and taking the time to listen to us as we share the macabre with you. You goners are the ones that make everything possible and everything worth it. This week, at the end of the episode, we will also share another one of our hashtag Be Better stories that came in from one of our goners. We mentioned this last week at the end of the episode, but we have decided that we want to make Be Better a bit of our thing. Part of that is that at the end of episodes, we're going to share short submissions from our listeners that come in via email or social media. We just want to end our episodes with a little bit of light after the darkness that usually accompanies our episodes. So, send us your hashtag Be Better stories and let's spread the word, the love, and the good. For now, we want to warn you a little bit with this episode. The story of murder and more that we're about to share with you includes subject matter that is certainly not for all listeners. The story includes murder and other dark topics. So please, be aware of what you're listening to and who is around. Things are about to get strange. Catherine Knight was born on October 24, 1955, in Tenterfield, Australia. Catherine was the fruits of an affair that occurred between her mom, Barbara Rowan, and her father, Ken Knight. Barbara was married to another man, Jack Rowan, and the two had four sons together when the affair happened. This affair was very scandalous and rocked the small town that all of the parties lived within. Barbara and Ken had met through Jack. This meant that Catherine, Jack, and an unborn and then very young Catherine had a very difficult life as Catherine's life was just getting started. Both the Knight and Rowan families were well known in the small town of Aberdeen and the gossip and backlash of the affair caused Barbara and Ken to move to Maury. None of Barbara's sons moved with her. 
with the two older sons staying with their father and the two younger boys moving to live with one of their aunts in Sydney, Australia. Barbara would wind up having four children with Ken as well, and in 1959, Jack Rowan passed away, and as such, the two boys that had been staying with him moved in with the Knight family. What we're about to get into is a lengthy lifetime of problems, outbursts, and crime by Catherine. You often hear people say that there is usually a bit of a runway before a person winds up committing major crimes, like murder, for example, and this is certainly one of those cases. Yes, this case has a lot of warning signs and honestly a lot of attributes of the cycle of abuse. There were many times in Catherine's life when the people around her knew to stay clear of her and try to get away from her, but sadly, whether because of fear, love, or something else, people wound up being drawn back into Catherine's life and Catherine's abuse. That is not to say that there isn't a lot of nature and nurture in this case as well. Catherine did not have an easy life, that much is for sure. We already covered the fact that her mother and her family were essentially outcasts from the society that they were a part of after the affair, and we also discussed the fact that there would now be eight people living under one roof. Ken and Barbara had four children, the two children from Barbara and Jack's relationship had moved in, and of course, Ken and Barbara also lived within the home. On top of what already seems like chaos with that many people and that many bodies, things were not good for Catherine at home. Her father Ken was an alcoholic, and it's said that he was violent at home and also used that violence and intimidation to rape her mother multiple, sometimes up to ten, times a day. Unfortunately for Catherine, her mother also did not really offer a place of solace for her either. Barbara would be incredibly open about sex, rape, and her sex life with her daughters, and even told them that she hated sex and hated men. Perhaps to some, that doesn't sound too bad, but there were not limits on what mom would tell her children. Her advice even came from an awful place. Catherine remembers telling her mom that a boy that she was dating wanted her to do sexual things with him, but that she didn't want to do it. Her mom told her to stop complaining and put up with it. Catherine also claims that she was sexually abused by several members of her family as well up until the age of 11, and that has been corroborated over the years by other family members. Through it all, though, it seems that Catherine tried her best when she was young to persevere. However, that is not to say that everything was all right for Catherine, neither at home nor inside of her own head. Catherine was seen as two different girls at school. She was at times a model student, and she earned many awards for good behavior. However, there was certainly another side of Catherine. Catherine was said to go into murderous rages over seemingly small things. She was said by classmates to have been a loner, and classmates also remember her being a bully who often went after children that were smaller than her. Catherine assaulted at least one boy at school with a weapon, and she even once injured a teacher. The incident with the teacher, however, was found upon investigation to have been in self-defense. She certainly seems to have been incredibly troubled, but I think that most of us knew someone like this growing up. Someone who struggled and had outbursts, I mean. 
I certainly think that it's fair to say, though, that most people don't grow up to be a murderer like Catherine did. That's certainly true. This girl, though, was dealt a very bad hand in life. Her family life was not great, and then her school life also seemed to be not great. Catherine wound up leaving school at the age of 15. She left school without the ability to read or write. Nonetheless, Catherine left school and got a job. She became a material cutter at a clothing factory instead of attending school. After a year of working as a material cutter, she would leave the job as she managed to score a job working in what she would call her dream job. The job that Catherine was incredibly excited to start was working at the local slaughterhouse, and her job was to cut up the entrails and the internal organs of animals. She did exceedingly well, it would seem, at that position, and would quickly find herself promoted to the position of boning. Boning is the act of breaking a carcass into parts and then removing the flesh from the bones. It also includes the separation of fat and connective tissue from the flesh. These processes are deemed to be very labor-intensive, but it was something that Catherine enjoyed immensely. As part of the promotion, Catherine was given her own set of butcher knives. Catherine would hang those knives over her bed starting when she got them, and she even continued that practice until she went to prison. She said that she did this so that they would always be handy if she ever needed them. That is pretty haunting. It certainly is. Not to say that being a butcher or doing any of this work is the sign of a murderer, because obviously there are so many people that do this kind of work. But I think the act of hanging your knives over your bed is a bit of a red flag. I'm pretty confident that I wouldn't be staying over or living with someone who slept with butcher knives at the ready above the bed. Catherine would develop a love life while she was boning. Catherine met David Kellett in 1973. David was a heavy drinker because of his own life circumstances. Two main triggers for him were watching his best friend die in front of him at a railway job where he was killed in a shunting accident. And the second came when he rescued injured children at a school bus accident where the bus had been struck by a train. Six children lost their lives that day, so one can imagine how traumatic this was. Both of those incidents would certainly be incidents that could drive someone to drink to forget. However, it appears that what David found in Catherine on some level was a protector. If he got into a fight, Catherine was right there to back him up. Catherine was known for physically threatening anyone who upset her or upset David. The two would get married in 1974 at the request of Catherine. David remembers getting some very pertinent advice from Catherine's mother on their wedding day. This is a quote directly from David. The old girl, speaking about Catherine's mom, told me to watch out. Quote, you better watch this one or she'll fucking kill you. Stir her up the wrong way or do the wrong thing and you're fucked. Don't ever think of playing up on her. She'll fucking kill you. Unquote. She would go on to tell David that Catherine had some screws loose and would likely be nothing but problems for David. With a warning like that, I think I would have run in the other direction. I mean, let's be real here. This wasn't a friend or a sibling. This wasn't a joke. 
These were words of wisdom, experience, and advice coming from Barbara in this situation. To be fair, though, Barbara didn't seem like a stand-up kind of person entirely either. She had her own skeletons in her own closet as well. For sure, but still. Those are really harsh words to be spoken at your daughter's wedding of all places. And she wasn't wrong. The marriage between Catherine and David didn't even start off peacefully. On the night of their wedding, Catherine attempted to strangle David, and the explanation was that he had fallen asleep after only having intercourse with her three times. This was just a precursor, really, of all the things that were to come. While pregnant, Catherine actually burned all of David's clothing and all of his shoes and proceeded to hit him in the back of the head with a frying pan. The reason? David had been late coming home from a darts competition that he was taking part in. He was late because he had made it to the finals of the tournament. After being hit with the frying pan, David was justifiably scared for his life in that situation and he ran. He ran to the neighbor's house and collapsed there. He would be treated for a severely fractured skull. One would assume that this is where the police first had their run-in with Catherine, and this is where she would run up against her first set of charges. But overall, that would be wrong. The police wanted, certainly, to charge Catherine, but Catherine quickly changed her behavior towards David. This is that cycle of abuse we're talking about. And she managed to get David to drop all of the charges against her. I want to pause for a moment here and kind of climb up on my soapbox in a very open and honest way. As someone that's been on the receiving end of varying degrees of abuse in my lifetime, I want to tell you that as a man or a woman, there is absolutely no shame in charging someone, leaving someone, and getting the hell out of Dodge. There were times in my past where I almost didn't leave soon enough, and it could have changed everything for me. If you are the victim of abuse on any level, get help and or leave. Staying mostly normalizes the abuse, and nobody deserves to deal with a life like that. The cycle of abuse is incredibly hard to break and incredibly hard to stop. You can see that in Catherine's stories on two levels. She grew up knowing abuse and lack of regard for others, and she carried that over seemingly but you can also see as we continue that Catherine just continued to do worse and worse things to people. David did manage to escape Catherine in May of 1976, shortly after the birth of the couple's first child, Melissa Ann. David left Catherine for another woman and left for Queensland. He was unable to deal with the constant onslaught of abuse and knew that he needed to get the hell out, and he did. That was a smart move on his part for sure. Unfortunately, that didn't last. The day after David left, Catherine was seen pushing Melissa Ann down the street in her stroller violently, pushing the stroller from side to side. Someone thankfully saw this behavior and Catherine would be admitted to St. Elmo's Hospital in Tamworth and she would be diagnosed with postnatal depression and would spend many weeks in the hospital trying to get help and recover. When she was released from the hospital, however, Catherine was not doing better. She actually placed her two-month-old daughter on a railway track while knowing that the train would be by very soon after. Catherine would then steal an axe and head into town and start threatening to kill people. Thankfully for Melissa Ann, 
a homeless person who was foraging nearby the rail line, saw Melissa and rescued her only minutes before the train passed through. Catherine would again be arrested and taken to St. Elmo's, but apparently she was recovered by the next day as she signed herself out of the hospital. All right. I'm not going to say that this is the first weird thing in this story so far, but this is certainly awful. So this woman was threatening to kill people with an axe that she stole while hoping a train killed her baby and the next day she was good to go? There were very clearly some mental health problems going on here. That seems pretty awful to me that she was just back on the streets the very next day. I feel like I want to make a cat came back the very next day joke here, but I won't. I think you just did. Sorry. Certainly, though, this isn't a good look. I assume that there was nothing really that anyone could do to keep her in custody or care for her because, in theory, she had simply stolen axe and been a bit of a menace. Was this a cure-all, though? I mean, if St. Elmo's has the ability to fix mental health issues overnight, where do I sign up? Unfortunately, as we know, because the murder case is coming eventually... This was not the end of Catherine's devolution into further crime. Only a few days after she left St. Elmo's, she slashed the face of a woman with one of those aforementioned butcher knives and then demanded that the woman drive her to Queensland so that she could go and see David. I suppose that there was nobody that she could simply, you know, ask to take her to Queensland. The reality is that Catherine very clearly needed help. There were people in her life that seriously liked Catherine. The problem was that when she got mad, and it didn't take much to make her mad, she could do horrendous things to anyone. She really needed help, and it just seems that no matter what she did, help was not becoming available for Catherine in the long run. It really is equal bit sad, terrifying, and horrible that this woman was living like this, and one would have to assume that she just had some serious mental problems. However, the worst parts of this story are still to come. Okay, back to this woman though. When the pair stopped on the way to Queensland at a service station, the woman managed to escape and call police. However, by the time the police arrived and located Catherine, she had taken a young boy as a hostage and she was threatening the boy with a knife. I have to admit that when I read this next part, I couldn't help but chuckle and even had to look up more sources. But the police managed to apprehend Catherine after they attacked her with brooms. And she was then taken and admitted to the Morissette Psychiatric Hospital. While in the hospital, Catherine told her attending nurses that she had planned to kill the mechanic at the rest stop because he had fixed David's car and made it possible for David to leave. She then planned to kill David and David's mother when she got to Queensland. Police had to tell David that Catherine was after him and had said that she even planned to kill him. They also had to contact him regardless because he was still Catherine's husband. When the police contacted David and told him about everything that had been going on, he left his girlfriend and moved back to Aberdeen with his mother to help take care of and help Catherine. He did what? I know. This is absurd to anyone probably listening to this story. But the reality is that this isn't uncommon. We do live in a world where we look at situations like this and there are two prevailing ways of looking at it. 
when you see someone that's clearly not doing well and clearly on a downward spiral like Catherine was, you can do one of two things. One, you can either run for the hills and get as far away from the situation as possible, or two, you can try to help. I won't say that either one of those is necessarily wrong, obviously, but clearly David still loved Catherine and felt the need to help her. It's heroic. It may not have been the smartest decision, but it is heroic. On August 9th, 1976, Catherine would be released from Morissette, and she would be released into the care of her mother-in-law. David and Catherine would move to Ipswich, and she would start working again, this time at the Dinmore Meatworks. On March 6, 1983, the pair had another daughter. Her name is Natasha Marie. In 1984, though, Catherine would be the one that would leave. She left David and moved back to Aberdeen with her parents for a short time and then moved to a house in Muswellbrook. Catherine returned to work at the slaughterhouse, but she would injure her back in 1985 and she would wind up taking a disability pension. She moved again, this time back to Aberdeen. To many, it seemed that perhaps Catherine was on the right path at this point in her life. But in 1986, she would meet a 38-year-old man named David Saunders. A few months after they met, Saunders moved in with Catherine and her daughters. Even though he moved in with Catherine, he still had an apartment that he kept in Scone, which was nearby. It didn't take long for Catherine's jealous streak to come back. She was always guessing and being jealous of anything that Saunders did when she wasn't around, and she often would kick him out of her house in fights. When that happened, Saunders would return to his apartment, but Catherine always followed him back and apologized and begged him to return. In May of 1987, the anger and the anger streak were back in full force. In a show of what would happen to Saunders if he even cheated on her, she slit the throat of his two-month-old dingo puppy in front of him and then proceeded to knock him out with a frying pan. But the couple stayed together. Earlier you said that David Kellett loved Catherine, but I have to really wonder if his return to take care of her and help her and even have another daughter with her was all out of fear. I don't think that the normal reaction would be to stay with someone as David Saunders did, especially after she slit an animal's throat and knocked you unconscious. You aren't wrong, and Saunders certainly did stay with Catherine also. In June of 1988, the pair had a child, a third daughter, Sarah. This prompted Saunders to put a deposit down on a house. The two eventually moved into the new house and Catherine decorated the home with animal skin, skulls, horns, rusted out animal traps, leather jackets, machetes, and pitchforks. There wasn't a space anywhere, including the ceilings, that were left uncovered. The two had a massive fight in which Catherine hit Saunders in the face with an iron and then stabbed him in the abdomen with a pair of scissors. After that fight, he moved back to Scone. When he eventually came back to Aberdeen and the house, he found that Catherine had cut up all of his clothing. At that point, Saunders seemed to realize that he needed to get away, and he went into hiding. Catherine would try to find him, but nobody would help her. Everyone said that they had no idea where he had gone. Months later, when Saunders reappeared, it was to see his daughter. He found that Catherine had actually gone to police and told them that she was afraid of him 
and they had issued an apprehended violence order, which means that Catherine had told police that she had been a victim of violence, and it was believed that she would be a victim of violence from David again. For a long time, it seemed like Catherine's life seemed to disappear from the public eye, and there was a break in the violence and in the ongoing crisis that she lived in. In 1997, she would have another child, this time a son named Eric. The pregnancy was with a former co-worker, 43-year-old John Chillingworth. Their relationship would last for about three years until Catherine left him for a man that she had already been having an affair with for a long time named John Price. John Charles Price was born on April 4, 1955, and he was already a father to three children when Catherine and he started to have an affair. John's previous marriage had ended in 1988, and his young daughter had stayed with his ex-wife, and the two older children had stayed with him. John was a wonderful man by all accounts, and it's said that everyone that knew him liked him and thought he was outstanding. Seems like the total opposite of Catherine. That's quite true. At first, when the families moved in together, it seemed as though things were going well. However, in 1998, there was the first nuclear fight. Angry that John would not marry her, Catherine videotaped items that John had allegedly stole from his workplace at the mine and then sent the video to his boss. Even though it was determined that the items were expired medical kits and they, they had been fished out of the company garbage bin, John would be fired from the job that he had known and been at for 17 years. John obviously kicked Catherine out of his house, and she again returned to Aberdeen with her children. John, though, would pursue a relationship with Catherine again. This seems to be a recurring theme, only a few months later. However, this time he not only wasn't going to marry her, he also wasn't going to let her move in with him. As someone who had been dominant her entire life, this must have driven Catherine crazy. I honestly cannot believe that someone would even want to have a relationship with her after she literally cost him his job. At this point, too, John was giving up his friends and even family as most people chose to stop associating with John when he went back to Catherine. Sadly, a job and his social life was not all that John was going to lose to Catherine. In February of 2000, Catherine and John had an argument that culminated with her trying to stab John right in the chest. He managed to escape serious damage that day, and he took out a restraining order in an attempt to keep Catherine away from him and from his children. As the, months went, as the month went on, John told people that he was concerned for his safety because of Catherine. He even told co-workers at his new job that if he didn't show up for work one day or he went missing, it was because Catherine Knight had murdered him. On February 29th, 2000, John would come home and find that Catherine had sent the children away to a sleepover at a friend's house, even though she wasn't even home. John, though, continued following his usual routine. He checked in with neighbors and then did things around the house before climbing into bed around 11 p.m. Shortly after John had gone to bed, Catherine came into the house, made herself a dinner, watched TV, showered, and then went upstairs. Catherine then woke John up and the two had sex. After sex, John went back to sleep. 
At 6 a.m. the next morning, a neighbor came by the house because they were concerned because John's car was still in the driveway. There wasn't an answer at the house. John's boss also sent a worker to the house because John had not shown up for work. The neighbor and the co-worker both tried to knock on windows and doors, but then decided to call police when they noticed what they thought might be blood on the front door. The police arrived around 8 a.m. and they broke down the back door of the house. Police found John's body there with Catherine nearby. Catherine had taken an overdose of medication. Before she had done that, she had done some incredibly terrible things. Catherine had stabbed John with a butcher's knife while he was sleeping. Then John had woken up and tried to turn on the light before he tried to get out of the house. Catherine chased him everywhere that he went. Police said that the physical evidence then showed that John had managed to get the front door opened and then he had either stumbled back into the house or been dragged back into the house where he would succumb to his injuries after bleeding out. After the attack, Catherine had gone into town and gone to an ATM machine to take out $1,000. John's autopsy would later show that he had been stabbed at least 37 times in the front and back and that many of the wounds were deep enough that they had also struck and cut vital organs. Catherine was not done there, though. I'll pause for a moment and say that what we're about to share makes the stabbings look tame. Listener discretion is advised. Hours after John had been left for dead, Catherine skinned him and hung the skin from a meat hook, and then decapitated him and cooked parts of his body. She served up plates of John with baked potato, pumpkin, beetroot, zucchini, cabbage, squash, and gravy, and proceeded to set two table places along with notes beside each plate. Each note had the name of one of John's children. She had prepared a meal for the children to eat their own father. When police arrived, John's head was in a pot surrounded by vegetables. Catherine also posed John's body with his left arm draped over an empty pop bottle and his legs were crossed. Catherine had also left a note with a photograph of John. Both were bloodstained and covered in flesh. The note was a lot of nonsense, as we stated earlier. Catherine could not read or write, but the note essentially said that she had done this because she claimed that John had raped her daughter. Police found those accusations to be untrue. After the case had been thoroughly investigated, Catherine offered to plead guilty to manslaughter, but that was rejected by the prosecutors. She was arraigned on March 2, 2001 on charges for murder. She pled not guilty. Her trial would commence on October 15, 2001 with jury selection. Of the 60 people who were brought in as potential jurors, when the judge offered jury prospects a chance to leave because of the nature of the photographic evidence in the trial, would leave. Other jurors would also be dismissed when they saw names on the witness list and then Catherine's counsel called for the day to be brought to an end, which it was. The next morning, Catherine changed her plea to guilty and the jury was dismissed. It was determined that the judge was made aware of the plea change the day before and had subsequently asked for her to get a psychiatric assessment to determine if Catherine was aware of what she was saying by putting in her plea of guilty. It was determined that Catherine was indeed sane, but that she was suffering from borderline personality disorder. 
No reason was ever given to the public regarding why Catherine's plea was changed, and it seemed that Catherine did not even really accept responsibility for the murder. At the sentencing hearing, her counsel even moved to try and have Catherine removed from the courtroom during the joint agreement of facts, which was not allowed by the justice. During the statement of facts, one expert was describing the skinning and decapitation of John, and Catherine became hysterical and had to be sedated. On November 8, 2001, Justice O'Keefe said that due to the nature of Catherine's crimes, he was sentencing her to life in prison. He said that life in prison without the chance of parole was the only sentence suitable for her crime. He ordered, too, that her papers be labeled never to be released. And that was the first time that such a move had ever been imposed on a woman in Australian history. Finally, in June of 2006, Catherine appealed the life sentence without parole and said that the punishment did not fit the crime. Her appeal was overturned and Justice McClellan said, quote, This was an appalling crime, almost beyond contemplation in a civilized society, unquote. That is not a wrong statement. Thankfully, this is something that we don't hear about often, especially on this level. Catherine literally committed so many indignities to John and John's body, and that is not even to speak about what she did before committing murder. This story is certainly over the top, but as I often do, I think that there's a lot of blame to go around in this case. First and foremost, I have to point at Catherine, of course. One should not have to live a life like Catherine did. Her life was hard right from the beginning. Being raped and being mistreated by family certainly is not the way that anyone's life should start. However, as she devolved and as she started to lash out, she should have looked for some help somewhere. She was not unaware of the things that she did, but the cycle of abuse is very real and she always felt that she could be better and apparently so did others in her life. I'll use a word of Julie's here, wound. Catherine had many wounds in her life that likely stemmed all the way back to that very same childhood. She didn't like men, she didn't trust men, and she carried out a lot of hate, anger, and distrust for men because of things that men had done to her and things that her mom had said to her. You can really see a pattern in her behavior. She would find a man that could handle the problems that she had and she would attempt to settle down, usually quickly. That alone is a fear of abandonment. Then she would do the things that she thought she had to do to keep that man in her life. She would threaten them, scare them, and even attack them. She would tell them what would happen if they cheated and she would often cause physical harm. That is where John kind of broke the cycle a bit by not allowing Catherine to move in with him. I think that caused Catherine to realize that she was no longer in control of the situation and then justified her actions in her own mind because she knew that she either needed to get John in line or get rid of John. And I think that that's what caused that massive mental break. It doesn't matter that she had mental health issues. When you can do the things to another person that Catherine did, you certainly need to be locked up and have the key not just thrown away, but destroyed. Catherine Knight is a monster and should absolutely never again see the light of day. However, I also must say that I hope she's getting some kind of help as well. 
Untreated mental health can certainly cause awful things to happen, but we also need to remember, too, that when someone struggles from mental health issues, that person suffers immensely. So that's what I think, and that's where I think I'll leave my closing thoughts on this case. What about you, Julie? Is there anything that you want to add? Oh my god, like, what to say? You know, like, this This is just crazy. Like, this doesn't even sound real to me. You know, like, the fact that someone can... I mean, first of all, she abused him a lot and was very, like, violent with him. But the fact that she put his body parts with, like, food... Like, I just can't even... My brain does not wrap around that. Like, you know, you would think if you were mad at someone... Like, once they're dead, they're dead. But she took it a step further and had to do more of whatever get rid of that anger after he was dead like that wasn't enough for her just to kill him she had to get that little bit of rage out afterwards as well and that's that's very frightening to think about like this case like i've said before like it has so many cycle of abuse things to it i mean you look at her past and it's like there were similarities she hit men in the head with a frying pan she cut up people's belongings and clothes. She would lash out in any way possible to get control of people. Mm-hmm. But then when they went to the police or the police wanted to lay charges, she would turn and go sweet as pie and apologize. And obviously there was enough of a good person in there that people believed her. Or like you said earlier, they were just so fucking scared yeah. that like they were not going to leave or press charges because they were afraid that you know what happened here was maybe going to happen to them. Yeah, oh, for sure. And and not even that, like, you know, she wanted to feed the kids, the dad. Yeah. You know, like, that's so screwed up. And, and in this whole situation, I can't believe how many kids this lady had. Like, she, no, she should not have to take responsibility for anybody's life. Like, she can't even take care of herself. You know, she needs to focus on herself, keep her in prison, get her the help she needs or whatever, but keep her away from all these innocent people. Oh, it's so terrible. Like, this one makes me sick. Like, my stomach is just... Ugh, you yeah, know? This, <laughs> one, this one's definitely... Um, it's unreal, right? Yeah. That's the thing. It's unreal. It it's doesn't almost sound like, like a real episode. Yeah, it's like you're watching a movie or a show or something. Yeah, yeah. So what do you say we transition out of here? Let's get out of this story and move on to something happier. All right, let's hear it. All right. So, well, let's just uh, hit that transition noise and we'll break into something that's not about murder and decapitation and all that horrible stuff. As we mentioned, we did want to share our second hashtag Be Better story that we received. This time, the story came to us through Instagram. The message we got was from Michael. Michael's message was as follows. I am from Guelph, Ontario, and this story is from a few years ago, but I wanted to share it because I feel like young people tend to get a bad rap nowadays, and I want to remind people that children have good hearts also. A lady named Nancy was taking her trash to the curb here, and she took a horrible fall. But luckily for her, there was a group of grade 7 students nearby, and they saved the day. They came to Nancy's aid, called 911, and even made sure to give Nancy a big hug before she was taken away in an ambulance. However, perhaps the best part of the story is that for a long time after, and this might even still be going on today, Two of the students would come to Nancy's house each week to help her take out the garbage. Remember, our kids are our most precious resource, and even though oftentimes we look down on teens, they are just people too. I want to remind everyone that regardless of age, we can all hashtag 
be better. So thank you, Michael. I think that's an awesome story. Oh my gosh, I love that story. Yeah, thank you, Michael. And I really hope Nancy's doing well. That is such a great story of just, you know, it's a simple act, you know? And I'm not going to say it's a small act because I don't think it's a small act, but I think it's a simple act. And it really just shows that, I mean, like Michael said, it doesn't matter what age you are, you can make a difference. Um, but also just something so simple as helping her still to this day, hopefully anyways, um, take out her garbage. You know, like, I think that is such a nice story. Thank you, Michael. I love this. This is amazing. There you go. Julie is living and loving her hashtag be better thing. Yeah, I love this so much. So I hope you guys keep sharing your stories with us because it just, you know, like, it doesn't have to be some crazy story. It can just be a little story from either you or someone you know. But like spread the positivity around because even though there is a lot bad going on in the world, we can be at a difference. We can be better. So we look forward to hearing everyone's story from around the world, around Canada. Um, and yeah, I just can't wait for next week. Perfect. Well, we'll leave it there. As we're about to embark on this awesome vacation that hopefully we'll have cool stories for you guys next time about. We'll wrap up this case, wrap up this episode, and say thank you for listening to Gone But Never Forgotten.